A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 177, High Noon at Tewkesbury. Before I pile ahead, a notice for you. Remember to check out the Agora Podcast Network and the associated website intriguingly named agorapodcastnetwork.com. And do check out this month's featured Agora Podcast, which is the Bohemian Podcast, all about that crossroads of Central Europe, the colourful history of Bohemia. Or, as we're supposed to call it now, Czechia. Plus, actually, a bunch of other fab podcasts if you go to podcastnick.com. Last week, we saw Warwick the Kingmaker into his grave, and for two days, Edward IV was able to relax. <sighs> Before the news arrived that Margaret, Edward, and his wife, Anne Neville, had finally, finally made landfall at Weymouth in Dorset, in the southwest of England. And the next day, they'd travelled the 16 miles north to Kern Abbey, their hearts full of hope that they would be reunited with the King of England, that their futures would be filled with joy, fun, laughter and compensation for ten years of obscurity. I hope they enjoyed that day, since the following day the news reached them by Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset and John Courtney, that Warwick and his brother were dead on the field of Barnet. Margaret didn't take the news well. In fact, she took it, quote, Like a woman all dismayed for fear, her heart was pierced with sorrow, her speech was in a manner gone, all her spirits were tormented with melancholy. Courtney and Somerset worked on her. Actually, as dyed-in-the-wool Lancastrian peers, they never felt comfortable with Warwick anyway, and they were probably quite glad he was gone. They worked on Margaret and convinced her that everything would still be okay. And here are their probable arguments. Number one, Warwick was an unreliable traitor. Don't even mention that greasy Clarence. We could never have trusted either of them anyway, so we're all better off without them. Number two, remember Lord Falkenberg, William Neville? Well, one of his bastards has a fleet of 45 ships several thousand men and a bunch of artillery. He's going to land in Kent and he's going to attack London. So maybe at this point, Margaret asks for his name, to which the reply appears to be, whatever, because bastard of Falkenberg is what he's known to history, nothing more than that. Point number three, look, we have loads of loyalties here in the southwest, and it's untouched by all those previous battles with men from London, the Midlands, the North and the West of England. We can build a better army, a new army, better than it was before, stronger, faster, with the men of Cornwall, Devon, Dorset and Somerset. Number four, last but not least, there's Jasper Tudor. Now he's in Wales with Margaret Beaufort's boy, Henry Tudor. He's raising men for the cause. Now, if we can link up with Jasper, we can knock over any army Edward can send against us. 
I'm not sure how quickly it took for Margaret to recover her sense of war, but spare a thought for poor old Anne Neville. Fourteen years old, married to a braggarty sort of bloke, utterly useless now in the political influence stakes, now that her dad lies dead in his grave. I wonder how she was treated by her mother-in-law, and I suspect it wouldn't have been great. Anyway, Somerset and Courtney were in fact correct. The Lancastrian army did grow as they marched north to Taunton, then to Wells and Bath, and the Queen's confidence grew along with her army. Now all they had to do was keep marching northwards until they could find a place to cross the River Severn into Wales and hook up with Jasper and Henry Tudor. And once they did that, the world would be their lobster. As they went, a blizzard of propaganda and misdirection went out from Margaret. Reports that Warwick was alive and well and living in a French resort somewhere. Feints sent out southwest to convince the world that Margaret was heading for Cornwall. You know, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, Edward was out to upset the Lancastrian apple cart once again. He wasn't fooled for a moment by the concept of Margaret heading into the darkest southwest, and he clocked that Jasper Tudor was the objective. So, he had to catch Margaret before she could reach a river crossing on the Severn, and the first of those would be at Gloucester. Gloucester was 100 miles north of her landing place at Weymouth. But it wasn't until the 24th of April that Edward could muster an army at Windsor, west of London. But he then made astonishing progress for a medieval army, covering 75 miles in four days, to arrive at Malmesbury in Wiltshire. And there he heard rotten news. Bristol had opened her gates, welcomed Margaret and Prince Edward inside, and provided her with an artillery train. At the same time, news reached Edward from London. The bastard of Falkenberg had landed in Kent with thousands of men and an artillery train and was now marching on London. Now, I don't know what your grandmother taught you, but mine taught me to finish one job before moving on to the next. Edward never met his grandmother, the rather ruthless Joan Beaufort, but someone must have told him the same thing, and he charged towards a place southwest of Malmesbury called Sodbury Hill on the 2nd of May, to crush the Lancastrian snake once and for all. He did this because his scouts told him that Margaret was coming from Bristol to launch a surprise attack. Now, there's an old hill fort on Sodbury Hill. When Edward arrived, he'd have had a bit of a view, and maybe, just maybe, he then saw that he'd boobed. Margaret had had no intention of attacking anyone before she was good and ready. She dipped one shoulder, little shimmy, swing of the hips, sold Edward a dummy, and he'd bought it. Margaret instead had slipped by him and was now at Barclay, 15 miles north of him with just 15 miles more to go to Gloucester. Now, if she could persuade Sir Richard Beecham, the governor of the town and castle of Gloucester, to open the gates, she would be across and clear into Wales and into a world of pain for Edward. Edward sent a note ahead to Beecham to hold Gloucester at all costs, and set off in pursuit on the 3rd of May. The 3rd of May was not a happy day for either army. Margaret wasted precious time before the gates of Gloucester with the piercing frustration that with safety so close, Beecham would not open the gates and held the bridge for the king. The next crossing was at Tewkesbury, a further 11 miles north. If she couldn't reach that first, then it would be Worcester, 16 miles more, and probably also close to her. So Tewkesbury it had to be, Tewkesbury or bust. 
Edward was behind. For him, the only route was to take a shortcut across the wolds west of Margaret's army through what was described as foul country. Jolly pretty, it has to be said, but it also had almost no water. And with the march of 31 miles, an army is going to need a drink or two, and he can't drink a view. Margaret arrived first, arriving at Tewkesbury in the evening of the 3rd of May after a 24-mile march from Barclay via Gloucester. But before the night closed in, she knew that effectively, although she'd arrived first, she'd lost the real race. Because after an astonishing 30-mile hike, Edward came down from the hills to take up a position a mile away before the night closed in. It meant that the Lancastrians didn't have the time to cross the river. Margaret, Somerset, Courtney and the young prince knew that the following day, Sunday the 4th of May, they'd have to fight for the crown. As the following day dawned, the battle lines were drawn. Margaret had spent the night at a place called Gupshill Manor, but as the fighting neared, she withdrew to Tewkesbury Abbey with the Countess of Devon and Anne Neville. Also with her was her lady-in-waiting, Catherine de Vore, whose husband, William de Vore, was also in the Queen's army. The army was probably around 5,000 men strong and was split into the traditional three battles. Somerset commanding the right, Lord Wenlock the centre with the Prince, and John Courtney, Earl of Devon, the left. Behind them lay Tewkesbury and the River Severn, ahead of them lay Edward's army, very similar size to the Lancastrians, about 5,000 men. And between the two armies was broken countryside, a maze of fields, sunken lanes and hedges. On the Yorkist side, Richard of Gloucester commanded the left battle facing Somerset. Richard had already proved his mettle at Barnet. Edward trusted his brother. Edward knew his quality. Clarence, meanwhile, was not given a command. Edward himself commanded the centre and the trusty Hastings was on the right. To start things off, an artillery battle ensued as each side battered away at each other's lines at which point Somerset decided that he could use this countryside to his own advantage. The high hedges and lanes gave a perfect chance for a surprise attack. The plan was he'd lead his battle unnoticed through the byways until they outflanked Gloucester, and then they'd attack. While the Yorkists were distracted, Wenlock from the centre would attack and drive through the disorganised Yorkist army. So Somerset took his battle and succeeded in reaching Gloucester's lines undetected and launched his attack. Edward didn't hesitate. He recognised immediately the danger and joined Gloucester to fight off the attack. Now who knows what might have happened next, but for two things. Firstly, Wenlock didn't attack in the centre. And so Somerset was left to fight alone. Secondly, it just so happened that Edward had hidden an emergency force of 200 spearmen on this very flank. So as Somerset attacked, they were able to come out and attack Somerset from behind, and the result was predictable. Somerset and his men fled back to the Lancastrian lines. All of this has the feel of a sort of prelude to the main event. Somerset made it back to the Lancastrian lines and was part of the army as Edward ordered the general advance but it seemed that the initial engagement was enough to break the Lancastrian spirit, and they ran. They ran towards the town, they ran towards the abbey, they ran wherever they could find. 
Many were trapped by the river and butchered in what became known as Bloody Meadow. In the chaos, Wenlock was killed, John Courtney was killed, and also Somerset's brother, John Beaufort, as the slaughter of the Beaufort clan continued. Their last surviving male member, Edmund, Duke of Somerset, fled towards the abbey and just made it inside before the Yorkists could stop him. And what of the last hope of the Lancastrian line, the young Prince Edward? As the Lancastrian army broke and ran, Prince Edward ran also, heading for the safety of the town. But he was seen. One version of the story has it that it was Clarence who saw him. Prince Edward was run down, and Margaret's son, pride and joy of the Lancastrian cause, was cut down and killed, crying to Clarence for mercy. Margaret may have seen what happened from Tewkesbury Abbey, but whether she saw or was told of the fate of her son, she fled with Anne, over the river, westwards towards Wales and towards the Abbey at Malvern. It could be said that Edward was looking for immediate closure, and in the heat of the battle he strode into the Abbey at Tewkesbury with his sword unsheathed and dripping with blood, but the abbot held his ground and refused him entrance. And so the day ended with the dead being stripped and removed, the sounds of celebrating Yorkists in the town and camp, and the sound of Lancastrians praying in the abbey. It was two days later, on the 6th of May 1471, that Edward convened a court of war, with Richard of Gloucester as Constable of England, and John Mowbray, the Duke of Norfolk and Marshal of England. The surviving Lancastrian lords, such as John Langstruther, Hugh Courtney, were quickly convicted. And the last surviving male Beaufort was dragged from his temporary sanctuary and also convicted, and then, like the others, taken to the marketplace in Tewkesbury and executed. But the Yorkists' troubles were not over yet. News then reached Edward that the bastard of Folkenberg had indeed marched across Kent and reached the walls of London, and that his ships held the Thames estuary. Edward immediately ordered an advance guard to head for London and set off after them as fast as he was able. In London, the Earl Rivers and the Earl of Essex commanded the resistance. The first assault came in the form of a bombardment from Falkenberg's ships, followed by an attempt to storm the London Bridge. After holding the attack off, the following day Rivers led an assault from a postern gate and the rebels retreated in chaos. Falkenberg continued to launch raids and clearly still hoped to get inside the city, but by the 15th of May, 1,500 of Edward's advance guard arrived in the city and Falkenberg knew the game was up, and he withdrew. Later, he'd ask for and get a pardon, but in the end his head would still end up on a spike. Leopard, spots, all that sort of thing. And so it was that, on the 21st of May, 1471, Edward, the conquering hero, returned to London. He came just like that, as a conquering hero. On the outskirts of London, between Islington and Shoreditch, he was met by the mayor, John Stockton, and the alderman of London too. And he knighted Stockton for his courage in retiring to bed, drawing his bedclothes around his ears and coughing loudly and ostentatiously. Thence, onward to the city of London in a procession led by his faithful brother Richard of Gloucester and his steady ally Hastings. He came with a vast retinue, quote, with standards unfurled and borne before him, 
and the nobles of his army, to the great joy and consolation of his friends, allies, and well-wishers, and to the great confusion of all his enemies. Edward was accompanied also by Clarence, the Dukes of Norfolk, Suffolk, and Buckingham, plus six earls and sixteen barons and nothing could emphasise more that whereas Edward had once himself been part of a small faction at Ludlow ten years before, faced with Henry's army composed of all the peers of the realm, it was now he that was seen as the legitimate king that could unite the country. Also in the procession, in a carriage at the back, like Vercingetorix on the streets of Rome, was pulled Queen Margaret. Margaret, Anne and Catherine de Vore had been discovered three days after the battle at Malvern Abbey where they'd hidden themselves in the hope of escape, and they'd be handed over to Edward. Margaret had come to the end of her struggle, and to an end that was viciously painful and a humiliating defeat. I can't imagine how hideous it must have been to have been in that carriage ride through the cheering crowds and colourful decorated streets. She'd been put in charge of Clarence, who rode ahead of her, and watching that pretentious, faithless, glib traitor whose desertion had cost her everything, including the life of her son, must have been exquisitely painful. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The last 10 years of her life are routinely presented as the miserable existence of a broken and defeated woman. Her father, René, helpfully wrote to her and suggested she take the matter of her woes up with God. Quote, For really is the aid of man tendered in such a reverse of fortune. Thanks, Dad. Margaret was to essentially be kept in confinement for the next four years of her life, entirely dependent on expenses paid for by Edward and mostly at Wallingford, in the company of her old friend Alice Chaucer, Dowager Duchess of Suffolk. Alice was paid five marks a week for her expenses. Five marks a week, ladies and gentlemen, is the most wretched penury for a queen who had maintained such a magnificent household in her pomp. Nonetheless, no one tried to divide her body into four separate pieces, so that was a bonus. And she and Alice at least had in the past been rather friendly. So maybe that period wasn't so bad. We know also that she joined the London Skinners fraternity for the Assumption of the Virgin at the same time as two of Elizabeth Woodville's ladies, and that Elizabeth Woodville herself was already a member, so it's possible that Margaret was being accepted back into aristocratic society. It's true to say, however, that what we know of the rest of Margaret's life is not on the face of it very encouraging. Alice Chaucer died in 1475, and in the same year, under the Treaty of Piquigny between Louis and Edward, Margaret was ransomed for 50,000 crowns to the French crown. She was handed over to Louis in 1476, and as part of the deal, she had to renounce any claims she might have had against Edward or any lands in England. And meanwhile, her father was far too busy living it up with his former mistress and showed very little interest at all in his daughter. 
What that meant was that Margaret was at the mercy of King Louis. Louis made absolutely sure she resigned any rights she might have had in her father's land in Anjou, and then he gave her an annual pension of 6,000 crowns. That's about 1,200 quid, which would have been pretty comfortable, as to say. The lifestyle of an earl. Hardly what she'd been used to at her zenith, but a darn sight better than five marks a week. Margaret died in 1482 at the age of 52, her father having died two years before. She had very little to leave in her will, and what she had went to Louis. The mean old beggar, in fact, when he heard of Margaret's death, wrote a grumpy letter, demanding all of her dogs. She has made me her heir, and this is all I shall get. I pray you not to keep any back, for you would cause me terribly great displeasure. Nice one, Louis, full of the milk of human kindness. It's worth noting also that the witness to Margaret's will, which she made a few weeks before she died, was one Catherine de Vaux, the very same lady-in-waiting who had been with her in Tewkesbury and Malvern Abbey when Margaret's hopes had all ended. And who knows, maybe they've been companions ever since that date. It does all sound a little miserable, it has to be said. The 16th century historian Hall played the pathos for all it was worth. And where in the beginning of her time she lived like a queen, in the middle she ruled like an empress. Towards the end she was vexed with trouble, never quiet nor in peace. And in her very extreme age she passed the days in France more like a death than a life languishing and mourning in continual sorrow, not so much for herself and her husband, whose ages were almost consumed and worn, but for the loss of Prince Edward, her son. Well, I never did. I hardly know where to start with all of that, probably with the description of my age as I write, 52, as very extreme age. Steady! And frankly, we don't know, and it's hard to avoid a suspicion that part of this bigging up of Margaret's dying days is connected to the frankly rather misogynistic hammering she gets. The she-wolf of France stuff. Plus, there's a lot of schadenfreude of how are the mighty fallen sort of stuff going on as well. True enough, how anyone survives the death of a child I have no idea, but it's hardly surprising she's no longer on the campaign trail, given that by that stage she had no rights to the throne. And we simply don't know what pleasures Margaret found in the last ten years of her life. But certainly, sure enough, a political force she was no longer. And I suspect that despite her fierce reputation, once her son Edward was gone, she no longer had any interest anyway. I mentioned that Margaret had no rights to the throne, and maybe you picked up on that. After his triumphal march through London on the 21st of May, Edward took off his happening gear and held a conference of his advisers, including Gloucester. As a result, the Constable of England, Richard of Gloucester as it happens, paid a visit to the Tower. The next day, the 22nd of May, the corpse of Henry VI was taken to Chertsey Abbey to be shown to the people. Now, there are a couple of interpretations of that night of the 21st of May. The really most charitable one comes from a staunchly Yorkist chronicler, would you believe? He said of Henry VI, referring to the death of his son, 
He took it so great despite, ear and indignation, that a pure displeasure and melancholy he died. Bless. However, when Henry the Sixth's corpse was examined very, very much later, his corpse was found to have brown hair and what looked suspiciously like matted blood in it. So much more likely is the Italian ambassador's judgment. King Edward caused King Henry to be secretly assassinated. He has, in short, chosen to crush the seed. Gloucester often gets the blame for Henry's death, but there can be little doubt that, generous, hail fellow well met as he might have been, this was Edward's decision and Edward's responsibility. With Prince Edward alive, killing Henry had been absolutely pointless and indeed counterproductive. Better to have a captured, useless woolsack of a king in the tower than a young, active, vigorous young prince at liberty. But with Edward dead, Henry was toast. With him gone, quote, no one now remained in the land of the living who could now claim the throne. And so ended the House of Lancaster, da, 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 finally and conclusively beaten into submission by the House of York. But that did not mean there were no other possible claimants to the throne. Just a few short months earlier, Henry Tudor had really been an irrelevance, a footnote. But now he was suddenly super significant. Henry Tudor's mum, Margaret Beaufort, and her third husband, Henry Stafford, actually made the perfect team for the great Wars of the Roses survival game. Because each of them was seen as part of one of the parties, though sometimes viewed with mild suspicion. Husband Henry Stafford was a Yorkist, and had been with Edward at Loosecote Field in 1470. But despite that, his marriage to Margaret made him slightly risky, and so he saw his brother made Earl of Wiltshire by Edward, but himself passed over. On the re-adeption, Stafford was briefly arrested by Henry, but released on petition of Margaret. And then, Margaret arranged an evening with King Henry, along with the young Henry Tudor. As a result, Somerset came to see them before the Battle of Barnet, to enlist them for Warwick's cause but Stafford, fortunately, chose the right side. By that I mean, of course, the winning side, choosing to fight for Edward at Barnet. Phew. Sadly, he was badly wounded, and he never recovered, dying six months later in October 1471, leaving a will for his, quote, most entire beloved wife. The 14-year-old Henry Tudor's newly dangerous position meant he would be separated from his mother for 13 years. He was with Uncle Jasper in Wales when the news of the defeat at Tewkesbury reached them. Edward was already alive to Henry's new importance. He sent a man called Roger Vaughan to bring them in. Roger Vaughan, unfortunately for him, did no such thing. Jasper, in one of the very few successes of his military life, trapped Vaughan and summarily executed him at Chepstow. Thereby did Jasper not only keep his freedom, but also revenge his father since it had been Roger Vaughan's father who had led Owen Tudor to the gallows. Such is the tangled web that English society had become after 16 years of civil war. Despite trying to hold Wales, Jasper and Henry were eventually forced to flee. They fled to Brittany, to live in a prison of a different kind, 
for Duke Francis of Brittany could hardly believe his luck when such a remarkably valuable pawn turned up on his side of the chessboard. Poor old Brittany spent its life trying to survive, sandwiched between two mighty neighbours in France and England. Now, here was an heir to the throne of England. Louis would love to have his grubby little mitts on him to cause trouble in England. Edward would love to have his grubby little mitts on him so he could send him to the glue factory. So it gave Duke Francis a wonderful gift, and he was not going to sell his little treasure cheaply. Jasper and Henry were looked after honourably enough, but it was not to be a peaceful thirteen years. There was constant diplomacy going on about their existence. Would Francis sell them? Would he support them? They were constantly moved unexpectedly from castle to castle to keep any would-be assassins on the hop. It can't have been a pleasant life, and the impact it would have on Henry would one day be there for all to see in glorious technicolour. So there we go. Edward IV had yet again seen off all comers. He's an odd chap. How he managed to let himself be caught by Warwick in 1470 beats me. But in 1471, he was at his absolute best. Decisive, energetic and inspiring leader, the winner of two battles on the trot, personally brave in battle and ruthless when he needed to be. Swoon! He'd had some luck, it has to be said. If the Lancastrians had managed to get their act together rather than attacking in singles, he could have been in real trouble. But now, now he was free to take vengeance and visit fire and sword on the enemies who had given him so much pain and treachery. Certainly, if this had been Henry VII, or Lord forbid, Henry VIII, there'd have been blood running through the streets. Now, it's not that there was no vengeance visiting, don't get me wrong. There was a commission, for example, that trawled through the southeast of England digging out traitors which led to the absolutely immortal line in the Great Chronicle. Such as were rich were hanged by the purse. The other that were needy were hung by the necks. That is a sharp line, isn't it? Bet the writer felt smug about that, though I reckon it had been better the other way round. But in fact, the evidence is that the poor were hung by the purse to boot. The king was an egalitarian, clearly, with progressive fines according to the ability to pay. There were only 13 sentences of attainder, and six of those were already dead, and pardons flew around like confetti. So call him what you like, Edward was not a vindictive man. The war was over, time to party, here's a pardon for you as long as you bring a bottle. The exception to all of this was one Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter, but then he was a bad egg, like all Hollands. So, as I say, Edward threw parties. There's a book from this time, 1471-2, called the Liber Niger, the Black Book. It was an attempt to regulate the expenses of the royal household, actually to keep costs down. But the stated assumption of the book was that the king had to show due magnificence, because that was the job of a king. A bunch of bohemian visitors related with open-mouthed respect and delight the wonders of a royal feast that they were allowed to attend at the king's generosity. At the cloud of players and singers, at the king's magnificence and his modern clothing, at the most gorgeous dresses of the queen. They concluded that the English court was the most magnificent in Christendom and they were not the only visitors to say the same. 
The Liber Niger describes the enormous household in great depth that surrounded the king and queen. Now Edward owed a great debt to Louis of Bruges, the man who'd allowed him to sleep on his floor while he'd been evicted in 1470. In 1472, Louis came to visit, and we get a good description of the more intimate side of Edward's entertaining, which might give you all a glimpse of the new royal household and how it carried on. So, Louis and his wife were greeted by the royal couple at the start of the visit, and escorted to their chambers. After dinner, they joined the Queen, who was playing games, a game called marteau, which was played with small balls of different colours, similar to marbles and clochy, a game of nine pins. And then there was dancing, including Edward dancing with his five-year-old daughter Elizabeth. In the morning it was matins, and then a tour of Windsor Great Park and lunch, a tour round the garden and vineyard, and then hunting, as you'd expect. The evening was a great event, a banquet thrown by the Queen, little Elizabeth in evidence again, and plenty of dancing afterwards. Actually, the impression is that Elizabeth, Elizabeth of York, as she'll be known one day, was pretty much the life and soul. And when they'd supped, my lady Elizabeth danced with the Duke of Buckingham and divers other ladies also. Entertainments were finished by nine, when Louis and his wife were taken to three chambers of pleasure. Two of these chambers were essentially posh bedrooms, to which Louis's wife went. The third was a bathroom with two baths covered with white linen, and Louis went into this one with Lord Hastings, no less. William Hastings took Louis's clothes off for him and then undressed himself, and they both lay in their respective baths eating comfits and green ginger before going to bed. Nice. Odd, but nice. And next day came all the really grand stuff. Louis created Earl of Winchester and seen grandly on his way. So there you are, a day in the life of Edward IV and his household. For the moment, we'll leave Edward and Elizabeth there, rewarding their friends, enjoying the party with their little uns, moving from palace to palace, Greenwich, Eltham, Westminster, Windsor and Sheen. The Liber Niger describes several royal households which had to be maintained for the royal pleasure. Next time, I think we'll have a rest from politics, maybe just for a week. Don't know yet, haven't written it yet. Ah! Anyway, but for the moment, more importantly, I have donators to thank. So thanks to my regular guys, Ross, Henry, Matt, Simon, Richard, William, and many thanks to new donators, a bloke I'm not allowed to mention, Paul, Don, Trista, and Christopher. So that's it for this week. So long, everyone. Thanks for all the fish. Good luck, and have a 